counselor, and Jesus, would you be our teacher today? We pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, good morning, Beach Point. Thank you. Thank you. Um, And I just want to tell you today, from me to you, Merry Christmas. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Merry Christmas. You know, usually we celebrate it on December 25th. um, But we're, you know, we're going to celebrate it again today because, you know, uh, I am so excited. Today we get to the portion of the story after 30 weeks where we, we are in the New Testament at Jesus' birth. So Merry Christmas today. Uh, very exciting. Yes, uh, we, we finally get to the place of the long-awaited king. Now, I don't know about you. I, I love the Old Testament. I mean, I can read it you know, forever. I get so much out of it. But man, nothing just you know, gets me fired up about you know, more than reading about Jesus. And that's exactly what we're going to get to do today. And so I also don't know about you, or if you know this about me, but I have uh, a half-brother who's 10 years younger than me, and he's autistic. His name is Trevor. Super, super cool dude. Uh, Just so fun. Uh, And there's so many things that I'd love to tell you about him, so many great things, but I don't have the time. But but one of the things that I want to tell you about him this morning that that I love in theory and hate in reality um, is his taste in music. Yeah, yeah. I'm very particular about music. Uh, I, I listen to all sorts of music. But I'm very particular about a certain genre of music that I don't like to listen to, and that's bad music. And um, uh, so, you know, uh, I also don't know if you know this about um, people with autism. They thrive on structure and, uh, and order, uh, particularly on consistency in that structure and order. And one of the, the pieces uh, of his structure and order was the background, kind of the ambiance music, the elevator music of his life. Now, the elevator music of his life was essentially Black Friday to the day after Christmas every day. Christmas music every day for five hours a day on repeat. And not just any Christmas music, too. It's very particular. It's not just any Christmas music. You can take your Mariah Carey and go somewhere else, okay? This is a very particular genre for Trevor. And it is, in fact, we started with, and I'm dating myself here a little bit, the double cassette. The double cassette um, of this particular album. The Time Life Treasury of Christmas. (laughs) Now, some of you... You know this, you know this, you know this album. And we went through, in between, um, I think the time I, he was about three years old or four years old, until I moved out uh, at 19, we went through about 14 sets of these albums because he listened to them so much that they not only ruined the cassettes, but then when we switched to those CDs, you know, those are dating myself too now, but... When we switched to CDs, he played them so often that the discs overheated and melted. Um, so for four to five hours, every single day, the Time Life Treasury of Christmas. Now, needless to say, it's not really my favorite thing about my bro. Um, however, I know every track on both of these albums, and anytime one of them comes up, 
totally gives me great memories of my brother. So that part's cool, I guess. And, you know, after all, I guess I got a brother out of it. So it's like, okay, I suppose, I suppose you know. And, you know, and I, and I definitely, I mean, here's the deal. I definitely didn't plan to have a brother with autism, but I wouldn't change it for the world. I definitely didn't plan to listen to four or five hours of, like, my grandparents' Christmas music every day for over a decade, just to be clear, if you didn't get that the first four times. But I wouldn't change it for the world. Coolest dude ever, right? I mean, it was just part of the deal. To get my awesome brother, I had to endure four to five hours of Christmas every single day. Now, um, when we get to this part of the story, almost something very similar happens. Now, I, I doubt very highly that you've had this experience in your home. Okay, Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. However, I can guarantee you that each and every one of you has had an experience where you were expecting one thing and something totally different showed up. Someone totally different came into your life. And it was good. And it was even better than you thought. And we're looking at this passage. This passage that's, that comes at the end of a very particular period in the people of God. Right? What we're trying to look at in the story is seeing God, God the story of God's people um, throughout history. That's called, we're calling that the lower story. And the overarching story of God working through his people throughout history. What we're calling the upper story. And this passage that we find ourselves in, chapter 22 of the story, we find ourselves coming to a strange place where, where there's inklings of something happening. Now, Brian and Justin just did an amazing job last week, didn't they? I mean, it was so good. Yeah, you can cheer for them, the two people. And um, uh, they did an amazing job last week, and they were ending a period of uh, God's people called the period of the prophets. And that's where we ended the last chapter. It was, it, now, if you don't know, right, we're, we're not calling, we're, you know, a prophet isn't like a fortune teller, you know. They don't have like some weird hairdo and they all wear dress robes and, uh, you know, ask you to come sit down with me. Uh, you know, like, this isn't how that happens, right? A prophet was simply a, a messenger for God. So God gave that person a message and that person gave that message to the people of God. And... Uh, and last week, what we did is we ended the part of the story of God's people where there was always a messenger bringing messages to God's people. What happened is, in between chapter 21 and 22, you're welcome for not making you wait this long, there were 400 years. No messages. All the people waiting, is God gonna, when's God going to talk to us again? I mean, can you imagine, like, waiting your entire life for God to give you an answer for something? And then waiting that same life four to five more times, depending on how much barbecue you eat? Okay? And God never giving you an answer? Always being silent? This is where we find ourselves in the story. And all of a sudden, in this passage, we, we get to the inklings of words that the people have longed to hear for so long, but they haven't heard them. And it's very simple, and it's the words that always came from the prophets. This is what God says. 
and they are here at that point. And so to see what uh, I mean, we are going to look at the story that tells us why Jesus was born. And to see what I mean, we got to open our Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Uh, it's on page 1024 in the Bibles in the racks in front of you. Or if you're following along in a copy of the story, it's on page 310, about middle of the way down. If you don't have a copy of the story yet and you're interested in getting one, they're in the lobby um, for a, a donation of five bucks. Or if you're new with us today, you can take your uh, Connect card to the Connect table and you get, like, like Mr. Gabe said, a yummy Starbucks card to go buy some, a sweet treat and a copy of the story for free. So... That being said, the the passage we're looking at is is Luke's Christmas narrative. It's the beginning of the end of the silent period, the beginning of something really radical, something really amazing that's about to happen. Now, most people, when they talk about Jesus, why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus come? What they really end up, most people end up saying is, Jesus came to die on the cross for our sins. While that's absolutely true, friends, that's not why he came. That's not what the scripture teaches. He did that. That was a part of his mission, but that's not why he came. And to see what I mean before you like get all you know, open arms and, and, and frustrated, let's look in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26. It says this, In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. I I think I'd be more worried that there was an angel than the greeting, but whatever. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great. And will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Why was Jesus born? Well, we see it there in the very last line of this passage. And it's the first thing I want you to write down. So I want to encourage you to grab your notes page, uh, take notes and follow along. This is actually the second fill-in. We'll get to the big idea at the end. Um, And it's this, that Jesus came to bring his unending kingdom. Jesus came to bring his unending kingdom. Jesus came to build a kingdom that will never end. Now, What you have to understand that this is really exciting news, but it's also incredibly confusing news for the original audience. Remember, the Bible is written from real people to real people, from a real place to a real place, from a a real time to a real time. It's not a collection of fairy tales. Now, why is this so confusing for the original audience? Well, here's why. Maybe you know this, maybe you don't. The concept of king, of God as king, is all throughout the Old Testament. But you know what's not there? Not one time, not a single time is it mentioned? The kingdom of God. is not mentioned one time throughout the entire Old Testament. This concept of the kingdom of God is brand new to the people of God. They have never heard this before. So, how, and, and what, what does Jesus do when he comes on the scene? He teaches what? Repentance in the kingdom. 
The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is like. Over and over and over again. He's teaching them this new way of understanding something that, had, that ought to have been understood throughout the centuries. So <clears throat> a lot of the times when we start talking about the kingdom, and, and I, don't, I don't want to assume this, people tend to come up with their own definitions of, of, of what that is. And, and so I just want to be really clear here for those of you you know, um, who may not know what the kingdom is, or maybe you think you know what it is and you may have a, a, an inaccurate description. Let me be very clear here. The kingdom of God has nothing to do with a place or a time. Ever. 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 In the history of God's people. It has nothing to do with a place or a time. It is the rule of God in the lives of people. So the only reason it has to do with places is because those people are there. And the only reason it has to do with times is because that's when the person exists. So the kingdom of God is the rule of God, the reign of God throughout history. And Jesus comes and says, you guys have been thinking about it in this little small way, in this small nation. But I'm telling you, no, 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 it's the whole world. It's not, it's not a place. The kingdom is where I am king. So <clears throat> Jesus is born to teach about the kingdom, to model what the kingdom looks like through his actions, to die, rise, and ascend, to overcome sin and offer a place for you and me in his eternal kingdom, to bring a kingdom that will never end. However, this kingdom is unlike any other kingdom. And if you're like me, anytime you hear kings and kingdoms, and I mean, all sorts of things come to your head, you know. Um, I was a literature major for, you know, one of, my, one of, my, one of the years uh, that, of my six majors that I did in college. Um, I was taking my time at school, and, uh, and so, you know, for me, I have all sorts of images in my head, like kings and kingdoms and dragons and Jesus riding a dragon, which is cool. And, uh, um, <clears throat> but this is not what it's like. This is not what the kingdom is like. You know, and for me, the best way I understand things is if I can compare and contrast them to something. All right, that's the way my brain works. And so I want to compare and contrast it to a king that existed at that time. His name was Herod. Herod the Great, to be more particular. He's called Herod the Great, one, because there's other Herods and it gets confusing. But he's called the Great because he was an amazingly great builder and architect. Uh, I want to just show you a couple things that he built throughout his kingdom. Um, the first one is the temple in Jerusalem. Here's, here's um, a, a photograph that I took when I was there. Just kidding. And um, <laughs> if I would have let that go, I think you guys would have laughed eventually because it was funny. And uh, <laughs> so, uh, but no, this is a model of it. And, you know, if, you're, if you were to, you know, go on Zillow and, and try to, you know, be purchasing the temple in Jerusalem, um, you know, it would have a description like this. Cozy charmer, nice, you know, um, uh, cozy rooms, right? We all know what, what's cozy, keep, you know, code for? Small, right. Uh, this place is only about 507,000 square feet. It's like a small little place that he built with no machines. It's easy, I'm sure, you know. So, so he builds this, this amazing temple, um, which, by the way, appeases the Jewish people at the time. And they begin to just kind of become his puppets in some ways. But we don't have time for that. So stop trying to bait me. Okay. And 
Then, though, what he, what he builds is he builds something called Caesarea by the Sea, which is one of his palaces. And this, this is a really important place in Scripture, and we don't have time for that uh, just yet. But look at this picture. This is, a, this is a rendering of it. Now, if you can see kind of where there's that port, if you can go up, I mean, just do kind of like, like this, like about two inches, and you get to these kind of these main, you know, uh, buildings that are kind of have like a red roof with some yellow lines on them. Um, those buildings, you can't see this because it's, you know, because of the, the angle of the shot, um, but they're on top of a mountain. And uh, that mountain uh, actually used to be at the edge where the water met the land. So he moved a mountain. A mountain? He moved, a mount, he moved a mountain from one place to another. Why? Because he, was, he didn't feel safe at the edge of the sea. And then, after moving a mountain as though that wasn't enough, he said, you know what? I'm going to tell the ocean what to do. So he raises the sea floor near everywhere except for the port that he built under the water, and on top of it. No machines, no cranes, nothing. All by hand, all by his slaves. Now, by the way, why this is, why this is really interesting is because if, you're, if you ever remember that passage in Scripture where Jesus says, uh, I tell you the truth, um, you can say, you know, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. Um, just so you know, they're, they're walking by this place looking at a moved mountain of a king who is contrary to the kingdom of God. Throwing that out there. And anyhow, Herod's point and purpose was simply to say this. Look at how awesome I am, right? Look at how great the stuff I build is. However, Jesus came to bring his unending kingdom and it was unlike any other kingdom. To see what I mean, we've got to look at John's Christmas story. Now, you may be saying, wait, I thought the book of John didn't have a Christmas story. He does. It's sort of. It's, it's called the prologue. And <clears throat> you don't have to turn there. You can if you want to John chapter 1. We're just going to be skipping around. It's on page 309 if you're following along in the story. But we'll throw it up here on the screen. We're going to start in John chapter 1. Look at, what, look at how John starts his Christmas narrative. Uh, he says it this way. He says, in the beginning <clears throat> was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And then he skips down, let's skip down to verse 14. And the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Skipping down to verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the father has made him known. So in the Luke passage, what we see is we see the point and the purpose of Jesus' coming. It's to bring an unending kingdom. Well, John comes along and he comments on this and he says, but this is what it was like. This is what the kingdom is like. If you ever wonder like, well, what's the kingdom of God like? Well, John tells us right here and it's the next thing I want you to write down. Jesus' kingdom is bringing grace and truth. 
By the way, I want you to do me a favor and in your bulletins, I want you to, or in your notes page, I want you to like triple underline the word and. Because it's not the word or. It's the word and. It's grace and truth. John is telling us that this God became flesh. He took on flesh. The fancy word for that is incarnation, um, if you've ever heard of that. Uh, and uh, and he, he made his temporary dwelling with us, and he brought something with him. A kingdom of grace and truth that is to never end. He says, do you want to know what God is like? No one knows what God is like except for the Son. Now, Paul, later, the apostle, um, he's going to later comment on this passage uh, in the book of Colossians. Now, you don't, wanna, you don't have to flip there because I'm going I'm to show you the passage. I, I love this passage. I could quote it in the NIV or the ESV. But I love the way the message interpretation uh, interprets it and, and puts it because I think it gets exactly at the heart of what we're talking about here. I'll throw it up here on the screen. It says this. Colossians 1.15 in the message, we look at this sun and see the God who cannot be seen. Exactly what John said, right? You can't see God. No one can see God except for the sun. However, when you look at the sun, you see the God who can't be seen. We look at this sun and see God's original purpose in everything created. So in other words, what is the kingdom of God like? Is it relegated to a place or a time? Is it, is it a list of rules? Is it, a, is, it a, is it a set of commands? Is it a law? What is it? No, it is in the person of Jesus Christ who came to show the original purpose of the people of God, which is to be saturated by two things, grace and truth, always, both, 100%, both. Grace, that first term, comes from, it's the Greek word charis. Um, for those of you who know Pastor Ken, now you know uh, why he named his kid, uh, you know, his new baby, charis. It means grace. Um, and uh, it means unmerited favor, okay? It's the closest word in the Greek that we have to the Hebrew word hesed, which if you don't remember that word hesed, it's the word that the, the people of God made up to try to define God's love because it was undefinable in their language, they didn't have a word for it, so they made one up. And then, as I've told you many times, when you go and look this word up, there's over 50 pages of definitions of it. And then at the end it says, and many more things. Okay? Etc. Um, you know, because it's so undefinable to them. So this Greek word, that's what it's saying. This kind of love, this kind of grace, this kind of unmerited favor. It's, you know, in, in our Bibles today, it's transferred as loving kindness or steadfastness. And the second word is the Greek word for truth. The word is aletheia or aletheia. And what it has to do with is being, uh, it's, it's not a very tolerant word. It's kind of a, an absolute word. It's not your truth is your truth, but my truth is my truth. Um, it's truth with a capital T, meaning true in all circumstances, in all, in all places, in all times for all people. That kind of truth. It's a very, like, you know, line in the sand moment, you know. Um, and so, so God is saying, um, hey, look at, look at my son. The father says, look at my son. When you look at my son, you see me. And when you see me, what you should see is 100% unmerited favor, stubborn, jealous love. And at the same time, 100% truth that is my way or the highway. Talk about a tension. Talk about a strange rope 
to try to walk on. But this is the kingdom, right? And how do they go together? How can Jesus be 100% both? Well, I think our problem is we use the wrong metaphor. For most of us, the metaphor looks like this. It's a scale, right? You know, this particular scale is a lawyer scale of justice, um, to which I tried to get Steve Downs to give me one. He said he was a lawyer when he was preaching, but he didn't even have one. Can you believe it? Um, what kind of lawyer are you if you don't have, um, you know, le- many leather-bound books and the smell of mahogany? I mean, you know, uh, so, love you, Steve. And, uh, but we think of grace and truth like a scale. Well, okay, I'm going to put more on this side, so it's going to be weighted more on this side. Well, I'm going to be put more on this side now because it's going to be weighted more on this side. And Jesus is saying that even that right there, I love this picture because notice it's just a little off. I love this picture because it's just a little off and Jesus is saying, no, 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 that's wrong. That's not and, that's or. Because you're leaning one way or the other. And Jesus is saying, no, it's 100% both. It should be perfectly balanced between these two. Some of us, we are, we're more the grace. We love grace. That's our thing, right? We, you know, we use it as a license to kind of do whatever we want in our lives. We use it as a license to, to kind of say phrases like this. You can't tell me what to do. Or my favorite, um, my favorite phrase of people a generation younger than me, don't judge me, as though making a distinction were somehow evil. Um, you know, like, oh, don't judge me. You can't judge me. How can you judge me? You do blah, blah, blah. This is, this is the kind of, we love, those are the people that love grace. They're all on the grace size, and they emphasize it at the expense of truth. Right? We might use it as a crutch to not confront the sin in our brothers and sisters' lives that we're in relationship with. You know, we, we might, for some of us, you know, we, we use the idea that grace is a, is a synonym for um, tolerance and coexistence. That everything can be true. And just so you know, once you say that, you automatically can't say that. Because then nothing can be false and then nothing can be true either. It's just a bad, don't, we don't have time for that, okay? So, you know, but some of us love grace. We love grace. We love to just kind of, all grace, all the time. No, no, no accountability. And we need, a, we need a heavy dose of truth to balance that scale out. But some of us, you know, we love truth, you know? And we put on that hat and we flash our Bible badge. Okay, like, oh, jealousy, huh? Right there, governor. Okay, we love, love to point out other people's sins. And by the way, um, if, you want, if you're wondering which one you are, let me tell you a really easy distinction. If you're one of the people who ever or regularly says, Hey, look, I just tell it like it is. This is you. Okay? Or if you're the, you know, if you're the person that says, like, well, whatever. It's not that big of a deal. Like, it doesn't matter. You're on the other end. Right? But let me just, add, let me just tell you this real quick. Um, if you're one of the people that just tells it like it is, can you do us all a favor and stop? No one appreciates you. I, I, I'm both kidding and absolutely not kidding, 
No one appreciates you just telling it like it is because let's be honest, you're just telling it like you think it is. Because if you're telling it like it is, then there better be grace and truth 100% in both because that's what it is. It's not just truth, right? There's a great, there's a great pastor that says, truth without grace is brutality. And grace without truth is being lost. And I love this idea, this, this tension. Some of us, we got a heavy dose of truth, but man, let's, let's bring some grace in it, please. Right? You know? Many of our problems, by the way, in our marriages, our parenting, our friendships, they, they spur from an imbalance of these two. Right? Think about it. Think about it for a second. Think about your marriage. If it was all grace and no truth. So your spouse can just do whatever you, they want, no matter how it affects you, and you know, you're just going to let them continue to become less and less the person that Jesus called them to be. Which is not loving for them at all. That's not helpful. Or about the other way, right? Truth with no grace. You know, you're critical. You're condescending. You, you take your spouse away from appearing, you know, um, being built up into the image of God. Fearfully and wonderfully made. Into being... Less than and small and insecure. That's not helpful. Or, or in our parenting, right? We emphasize grace without truth and we just let our kids get away with murder. They run around, they're crazy, you know? And you sit at home wondering, like, why nobody wants to go out to dinner with you and your kids? Okay? It's because they're like rascals, okay? <laughs> you know? But then on the other hand, you know, you love discipline as a parent. You love being disciplined. You love having the regiment. Everything's, you know, prim and proper. Everything's trim and, and tight. And your kids are super well behaved. You know, and yet they, they lack an ability to experience God's love in their life through you. And as someone who worked with youth for over 15 years, I will tell you this very clear statement. Truth without grace produces well-behaved children who turn into adults that want very little to do with you. Truth without grace produces well-behaved children who turn into adults that want very little to do with you. And I know that wherever we're at in this spectrum, nobody wants either of these things. Nobody wakes up and says, ha-ha, crush my kid's soul. You know, nobody wakes up and says, ha-ha, create a terrible citizen. Like, nobody ever wakes up that way. But Jesus comes along and says, I'm bringing a kingdom, and it's got to have both, because when it doesn't, things get messy. They get messed up. Right, and when when it comes to our friendships, I mean, I have, you know, I have a number of friendships uh, here in this congregation, you know, and and about seven hundred adults that show up every weekend, who, if I do something wrong, or feel free to tell me, I'm just kidding, you don't. It's only about six hundred, and um, but but in all honesty, I do really have probably about five to to ten of to ten people in my life. Some are sitting in this room right now, who when I cross the line. They, they show up and they give truth and say, no, 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 that's not you. That's not who you are. And notice how they did that. They didn't show up and say, hey, you stupid bleep, you know, like, whoosh. No. They, they show what Paul says in Galatians chapter 6. You who are strong, when you see your brother or sister caught in sin, should restore them gently. They come to me and they bring truth. 
Now imagine if in our friendships, we just never bothered with anything real. Remember, aletheia, truth, is a synonym for genuinity and authenticity. How would you like to have all your friendships be completely fake and completely lack genuinity? Yes. No, we don't want that. That's, no one wants that. How do we live in the tension of both, though? Well, there's a story from Jesus that captures this so well. And it's found in John chapter 8. We're going to throw it up here on the screen because we're going to kind of be pausing at, at different moments. And there's this amazing moment where Jesus shows up in the middle of a woman caught in a sinful act. And he gives us actionable definition of what grace and truth look like with skin on. And in John chapter 8 verse 3 we start this. And it will throw up here on the screen. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, or excuse me, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this as a trap in order for a basis to accuse him. Now, I want to pause there real quick. Adultery was one of the top three cardinal sins uh, in the Jewish law, and it was one of the three sins that was punishable by death. And from a purely legal standpoint, the Pharisees and the scribes were well within their right to stone this woman. However, uh, last time I checked, uh, and I've got two kids, it does take two to tango. However, he's not here, um, and and we don't have time for that. But they don't care about this woman. What do they care about? They're using this as a basis to accuse him. Because if he says, let her go, then he doesn't have truth. He doesn't have the truth of the law. If he says... um, If he says, stoner, he loses his relationship and his reputation as being a friend of sinners. And so they trap him. Now, Jesus is just the master at this. Anytime somebody wants to trap him, he's just like, (laughs) you got it. You know, like, this is his sweet spot, okay? So what does he do? What any normal, rational, logical person would do. um, And we find this in verse 6, and we'll throw it up here on the the second part of verse 6. It says, but Jesus bent down. And started to write on the ground with his finger. Oh, of course. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and so he starts to write on the ground. Instead of answering this question, he starts to write on the ground. Now, scholars, man, they speculate. They love to speculate about what Jesus wrote on the ground. And the most compelling arguments um, are, we don't know. Those are the most compelling arguments. However, um, if you have to imagine Jesus and in his character, I think... One of the ideas is that he began to write the sins of the accusers on the ground. This seems like his style. He's not yelling at you. He's just sort of like, do, 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 do. Now, I know exactly what it feels like to be in this moment because my wife is the master at this. I'm a total extrovert. I process everything out loud. I talk 9 million miles a minute, 900 million miles a day. Okay, like I love to talk. I'm a 30 out of 30 extrovert on the Myers-Briggs. My wife is a 20 out of 30 introvert. Okay, so, and she loves to color, right? It's a cool thing to color now, but she's been coloring since before it was cool because she's like a, you know, 20-year preschool teacher vet. So she just never stopped coloring. She just graduated, you know, from coloring for herself to coloring with little kids. Now, and so now she does it, she doodles, she colors these cool designs and stuff. And I'll be telling like 9,000 things. I'll be telling her all sorts of different, you know, I did this and then I'm, oh, and then I'm telling her about these ideas and these arguments of things that I'm having. And she'll listen, mm, yeah, mm, and doodles and doodles and doodles. And then in one sentence, she'll destroy everything I just said in an argument. And I'll be like, and then I'll, of course, try to fix it with 9,000 more words. And she'll destroy it again. 
However, the Pharisees, they continue to question Jesus. They continue to push him. And he essentially says these words. If you don't have any sin in your life, I give you permission to kill this woman. Right? The the words in the scripture are, let him who has no sin be the first to throw a stone. But essentially what he's saying is, if you don't have sin, by all means. Of course, the irony of this point is the one saying it is the only one who qualifies. The one saying it is the only one without sin. And so, after they all leave, they all continue to leave one by one, Jesus says to them, stands up and has this intimate moment with just him and the woman. And he essentially says, where does everybody go? Has no one else condemned you to death? And she says, no one. And he says, then neither do I, even though I could have thrown the stone. That's grace. Undeserved, unmerited favor. However, he doesn't stop there. And then he says these words of truth. Go and leave your life of sin. Leave it behind. It's time to be done with this way of living. I didn't call you, I didn't make you to live in these ways. Leave. Truth and grace. The sin isn't treated lightly, but the person is. And that really brings us to our big idea. And it's this, that Jesus came to bring a kingdom, his kingdom, in grace and truth. Jesus came to bring his kingdom in grace and truth. 100% all the time. And so the question for you and I this morning is simple. Where do we struggle with grace and truth? Where do you struggle with grace and truth? Is it in your own heart? You excuse sin and say, that you know, in the same words that I once heard a high school student say to me in a life group, well, everybody sins, so a little bit isn't that big of a deal to God. Well, just so you know, that, that's absolutely wrong. Every sin grieves the heart of God. And, or maybe it's on the other end. You're like me. You can give grace away as fast as you can receive it from God, but you will punish yourself to no end for every sin you make. Friends, that is called the shame of the devil. And it has nothing to do with the conviction of the Spirit. Or maybe it's not in your own heart. Maybe it's with other people. Too much truth. You're the, you're the gospel police as though Jesus needed your help. At least when dealing with sin, I should say. Or maybe you're the... Everything's cool. It's going, you know, it's fine. I'm not, I, 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 it's just gonna be awkward. I don't want to deal with like hard conversations with people. Like ah, that, that would just be weird. Friends, that's not the body either. May we be a church that holds both in the highest regard. That we exalt and lift up the the scripture when it says, "Take sin seriously. Sin is a big deal to God." May we be the kinds of people who say to ourselves and to others, go now and leave your life of sin. However, may we do it in such a way 
that Jesus did with that woman that day. Did she walk away feeling condemned? Absolutely not. She walked away feeling inspired to be the person she was made to be. May we be those people. Friends, where do you struggle? You have an opportunity in your 8 to 15, in your work, in your city, to be saturators of grace and truth. Where are you struggling giving that away? Go now to prayer. Ask God, where am I struggling? Because friends, in the spirit of gracious truth, God is not withholding either of them from you. Please, please go to him now and find out where you're withholding them from yourself or others. Go now to prayer and reflect.